Welcome to The Cut presents In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. I'm taking over this feed and talking to women we at The Cut love and admire or just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, what got in their way, and how they think about bringing others along now that they've arrived. This week, we talked with Slow Factory founder Celine Simon about regenerative design, how she shops and consumes in a world of fast fashion, opening a climate school, and her hopes for the future of activism and sustainability. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latinx minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Celine. I'm so excited for us to talk. Thank you so much for having me. We were on a panel together for Slow Factory, which is how we met. But that had to be five years ago. Maybe. That was so long ago. (laughs) But I remember even then I was so intrigued by your passion for inclusivity and sustainability. And you've done so many amazing things with Slow Factory. What really brought you to start Slow Factory and I think continue to build in an industry that, you know, really doesn't take inclusivity or sustainability seriously? So we started Slow Factory in 2008, and the name came as a commentary to the fast-paced, everything going fast, 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 fast food, fast consumption, fast fashion, as you know. And I said, what about Slow Factory? What about creating Slow Factories? So I bought the domain name in 2008, and from 2008 to 2012, I was researching how to best create that space, that platform to effectively slow down and and look at the big picture. That's basically how we started. That's amazing. You talk a lot about regenerative design. Can you orient us into what that means and, and why it's so important to the mission of Soul Factory? So regenerative design is essentially looking at how nature operates. In nature, everything gets regenerated. There's no such thing as waste in nature. It's a very foreign concept, if you will, from how our ecosystems are built. And the idea of regenerative design is looking at the end of life of an item and the end of life of things and creating systems in a regenerative way, in a way that is built on reciprocity, built on the fact that it returns to the earth as food, not as poison. I want to talk also about, you've tied this in so well, I think, in in discussing, you know, why regenerative design, why sustainability, why inclusivity, all these things are part of your story as an individual as well. And I remember actually on that panel that we were on together, you were talking about the origins of your work in a trip that you made to Lebanon and your childhood. So, I would love if you would give the readers and listeners just a little bit of background about your childhood and and the origins of your family and identity and how that's tied into this work. Yes, of course. I built Slow Factory based on my lived experience as a 
first-generation war survivor and as a child refugee that came to the United States with my family, my mom and my sister. We were once of the lucky ones who were able to escape and find asylum in Canada. We came to North America through the United States and got escorted to the borders. And that has built my awareness in this world, you know, being an outsider, being someone who's not from anywhere necessarily because I escaped the war. I was five and a half years old and, you know, all I could carry were my plush toys. And then when we returned, I was a teen and the war had officially ended. There was a last ceasefire. We came back to Lebanon when I was 12, 13 years old, which also has shaped my perception in this world in a way where, you know, witnessing the cost the war had on my country from an environmental perspective, from a human rights perspective, I couldn't unsee what I had seen, just the way that uh, the war had destroyed our habitat, the ecosystem of our country has shaped me as the person that I am today. So what then led you to really want to have a path in fashion and design and bring all of that knowledge to an industry that obviously is wonderfully creative, but I think also thrives on exclusivity and hasn't really fundamentally cared about a lot of things that you do care about? It's true. So well put. They don't care. You know, honestly, it was a very difficult path. When we first started with Slow Factory, just, you know, rewind a little bit as a Lebanese woman in my culture, you know, fashion and beauty. And I wrote for the cut about that multiple times are cultural. It's a it's a coping mechanism, especially after what happened to us during the war. I worked in refugee camps in Lebanon and worked with women who are teaching beauty within the refugee camps. And I remember I wrote that for the cut a while ago. I went to the refugee camp filming and working with everybody there. I didn't put makeup on. My hair was a mess. And I just left as I was, you know. And then when I arrived there, the Palestinian and the Syrian women that welcomed me looked at me like, come on, show some respect for yourself. And they sat me down and did my hair and makeup, which made me realize how much fashion and beauty are coping mechanisms or so important, at least in our culture. They bring us dignity, something that cannot be taken away from us. So Fashion was for me a right that I could use that to create awareness, to use it as a platform for social and environmental justice. And in 2013, when my work became a little bit more known, that was before, as I said, the change in the, the administration, the U.S. administration from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And at the time, fashion and activism were considered frivolous or something that's so far-fetched. If you're so complicated, why do you need to talk about about this, you are so annoying and complicated and troublemaker and all this, <laughs> where we were very convinced within the team and within myself that there is a need for this. And fast forward 2016, fashion activism became the pussy hats and became all these t-shirts uh, that were sold for awareness on feminism or at least white feminism, as we saw. And it was an important moment to redefine it again and again so it doesn't get lost I mean, you've talked about this moment where you realized, you know, how important fashion and beauty were to you as a coping mechanism. Tell me about a time where you realized that fashion is incredibly wasteful and that you felt like I need to to do more work here because there aren't as many progressions or advancements as we think there are happening. 
Absolutely. And I also wrote about that for the cut. If you want to talk about sustainability, you have to address colonialism. And the reason why I mentioned that is because shortly after the war ended in the 1990s, the first conglomerates that opened in Lebanon were Zara, H&M. And that really changed our culture and created far more waste than we were able to cope with as a post-war country that already had troubles with infrastructure such as waste, water. But waste management is a big issue in our country and in the global south in general, because what happens oftentimes when you start tracing supply chain, which is what I was doing, in tracing these systems, you can understand that most of the waste that's coming from the global north USA, Europe, they're being shipped to countries in the global south that have a very fragile infrastructure, to say it in a better term, because they aren't built to receive that amount of production and waste. And the reason why there's so much waste in the global north is because there's such a turnaround on fashion, especially fast fashion. It is considered a cheaper option in the global north. But in the global south, when Zara and H&M open, these price points were very high for us. So we don't consume it as fast and as much as we would do here, in the, for example, in the United States. You brought up so many things I want to break down for people, because I think for you, activism and fashion have always been natural partners. And there's just obviously so much crossover. But that I think even still to this day feels like it's such a, a new territory for people in fashion to really think that activism also has a place in what we are doing and how we consume and what we wear and and what brands we choose to buy. What would you say to people who are still hesitant about, you know, having the conversation of activism and fashion together? Because I think it's so important to, to what you're discussing and why we can't discuss fashion without activism conversations. Yes, definitely. Well, activism is a very loaded term. Again, before 2016, activists were not considered fashionable or cool or even someone to center on the cover of a magazine. But also I I want to say like, I'm not an activist. An activist for me, and because we work with so many frontline communities, are people that are literally putting their bodies at risk at the borders of these dangerous things that are happening. So I would like to say that I'm much more of an advocate, if you will, because I am safe and I take my safety very seriously because I have been unsafe many times in my life as a first generation war survivor. So fashion and activism, it's an awareness. It's basically what What's going on right now is people are asking these questions. When we talk to the public through the conferences that we built, through Study Hall, the first climate conference in fashion, and we address thousands and thousands of people, we always encourage the activists within, the activists within the industry. Because in activism as well, there's always this notion that you are outside the institution showing signs and protesting. That's what an activist is. But an activist can also be within and can be someone who advocates within these industries and changes the industry from the inside out. I mean, you also brought up Zara and H&M and other, you know, fast fashion retailers. And I wanted to ask you two questions because I'm curious about how you shop and how you consume. I think especially in this day and age with social media, I think we're bombarded with so much. And I think also when you like fashion, you like to be creative. You would like to try different things. And so I'm curious about how you shop as a first question. And I have a second question too. (laughs) (laughs) How I shop. What a good question. First of all, 
in the work that I've been doing since 2008, my relationship to fashion has changed. I was never really someone who bought so much from fast fashion groups because I was a very odd person in my style. You know, I spent many years just wearing gray from head to toe because I wanted to disappear. <laughs> I was trying to figure out who am I, you know, what am I doing and what is my style? What is my identity? I had a lot of identity questions. But during the work that I've been doing with fashion, actually... I started to shop with designers that I have met, that I knew, that I know their work because they are putting their heart and soul behind it. And I always wanted to encourage this type of, of industry, the industry of the artisan, the designer, the person who has a specific idea and has a way to control their supply chain, if you will. And then again, when I go back and forth to Lebanon, I love buying Lebanese designers some of my peers that are creating fashion in such a new and innovative way. So I purchase a lot of Lebanese designers whenever I can. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The second part of my question is because I'm so curious. I spent a lot of time on TikTok and I always find it fascinating that people are obsessed with the Shein hauls and just buying mass amounts of clothing and everything is individually <laughs> packaged in plastic and they pour it out and it's like you can't look away because it's just the craziest thing. And I think especially in this day and age and knowing all the information that we know about sustainability and fast fashion and it still being this sense of people feeling this pressure but also just wanting to consume more, what do you think when you see things like that? And, and what would you say to young people who are still, you know, participating in these massive halls? Yes, I would like to shout out two of my peers, Aja Barber, who wrote the book Consumed. Yes. Yeah. One of our board members as well at the Slow Factory. She has written and talked so much about solutions the individuals can do in breaking up with fashion. There's an addiction to it where you're trying to fill up a void within yourself to purchase all these things. And fast fashion has become much more popular and there were way more purchases in the Instagram era, you know, like right. taking pictures of your outfits and wearing them only once. So I believe TikTok is experiencing the same kind of phenomena where you don't want to show up twice with the same outfit. I don't know if you're going to ask me about the metaverse, but <laughs> a lot of people think that the metaverse <laughs> is going to solve it. But <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. It's the same idea about consumption and filling up a void. So Aja Barber talks a lot about that. And another one of my peer who is the founder, one of the co-founders of Fashion Revolution, Ursula de Castro, who is a professor and someone who has talked at length about one of the most sustainable item that you can purchase is the one that's already in your closet. That's I'm, I'm butchering her quote, but that's basically what she says. Both of them have really identified ways that individuals could really either break up with fast fashion, figure out how to evolve their style without having to engage with Sheen and with the H&Ms and all of these people. That being said, I also have written at length myself about the idea that shaming people for buying fast fashion is 
is also not the solution right. because fast fashion has allowed a lot of women and especially women from the global majority, black, brown, indigenous, minority, ethnic women to enter the workforce because of the fact that there's a better price point. So I just want to bring back a notion of nuance here. There is no shame in this conversation. There can't be. And at the same time, we need nuances when we discuss these topics. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I understand both sides of things. I mean, I think a lot of the fashion companies that are specifically fast fashion, they are a lot more inclusive of sizing, which is something that, you know, we've both been critical about with fashion not being inclusive of all sizes and only going up to a certain size. And so I think also there, there's been a lot of gaps, I think, on both ends that this whole entire conversation requires some nuance. I think Obviously, you come across so much information and in having all of these conversations, I'm sure there's a million statistics and things that you've learned along the way. What would you say are some of the most important facts or things that you would want people to know since there is so much information out there? What do you think are the the biggest things that people need to understand right now? Well, one of the things is that it is a systemic issue. So It doesn't matter if you stop purchasing anything new ever again and you go vegan, we're still going to run into the same issues because this is a systemic issue. Now, that being said, your individual action is welcome. It's needed. But doing it out of guilt, out of this feeling of doom and gloom, it's not conducive to any collective change at the end of the day. What we need and what we figured out within the team of the Slow Factory is that education is at the heart of this movement of change. The way that we are learning at school to design clothing, for example, it's the old way, if you will, you know, like you're designing things from a roll of raw fabric, you're cutting your patterns, throwing the excess in the garbage bin. Yes, there are groups, especially in New York City, like Fab Scrap, who are going to divert that from the landfill. But at scale, this doesn't make any sense. So The way that we are educating the fashion students of the future is where Slow Factory is playing the most role in. It's this type of new education that looks at regenerative design, as you mentioned. We allow people to start having a cognitive shift, an experience where they begin to understand that, okay, we need to figure out new ways and we need to be innovative. We need to put this creativity to action, not to create more styles, but to create better systems. And I think that's what the focus is the most when we are discussing solutions. Solutions are in material science, in creating new systems, and in changing culture. I know that you are doing a climate school, and that's going to change culture. So tell us more about that. I think it's the coolest thing ever. What is this climate school going to be about? Like, where did the idea come from? And I believe it's opening in the fall, but tell us more about it. Absolutely. So the Slow Factory Institute is opening a 20,000 square feet school and lab, if you will, in a Sunset Park. It's a project with NYC EDC. It's been a project that we've been working on for the past three years. During COVID, we thought the project was never going to see the light of day because there were so much uncertainty, so many delays. Everything felt impossible and the physical location felt sort of obsolete in a world where we were living on Skype or on Zoom or digitally at least. So we rolled the programs that we were anyway going to launch online through Open Education or for short, Open EDU. And it's basically free 
online sustainability literacy education for all. We talk about material science, we talk about new systems, we talk about upcycling. And now with the school, it's a way for us to be able to really teach the next skills that are going to be needed in the fashion industry. We have a program called Garment to Garment, where we teach the next generation of designers to upcycle at scale. So to design from an existing garment and to turn existing garments into new items. It's basically a Bauhaus school for climate justice, if you will, the way that we are building it, essentially uh, lowering the bar to entry to science, skilled training jobs, if you will, in the fashion industry, lowering the bar to entry to education, because all of our education is going to be available for free at zero cost. And we are working now with Parsons, it's like an exclusive, where we're going to be able to provide a non-degree certificate for our students that are taking these training programs with us. We're playing a role as a knowledge partner for so many different entities, including brands, because the way that we are innovating is in the space of open knowledge. And open knowledge is education outside the institution, the education that is peer-to-peer education or open knowledge or open education are, you know, frameworks of understanding that are self-organized. And when I was talking about that to a friend of mine who's a biologist, he said, oh my God, that's how ants communicate with one another. Hmm. It's called stigmergy and it's changing, altering the environment, leaving bits and pieces of information so that ants can communicate and alter their environment and learn, build upon each other. So that's a bit what we're doing with the Slow Factory Institute. No, oh, that's so beautiful. I think that you just going through this undertaking of providing all these resources and climate school makes me incredibly hopeful. What is making you hopeful about the future of sustainability in fashion? that the climate school is able to divert 60 tons of textile waste per year. New York City has a problem of 200,000 tons of textile waste per year that is generated by the population. People buying things and throwing them into the donation bin or the garbage oftentimes. And we are able through this program, through one school alone, to divert 60 tons of textile waste, which compared to the 200,000 tons is not much, but it's a model and it's a replicable model. And that's what's giving me hope is that hopefully we can have slow factory schools and institutes around the world. So that's giving me a lot of hope. The other thing is also the huge growing market, which is the new materials market, new leathers. I'm sure you've heard like the mushroom leathers and the, you know, for us, it's the bacteria nanocellulose leather, which is a kombucha leather, but that's going to be the next wave because it does doesn't rely on agriculture. It doesn't rely on industrial agriculture. And that's what's giving me hope is these solutions that don't take away from our food systems Mm -hmm. and use what we already have. Yeah. Last question, which I know you probably get a lot, but I think is always helpful to, to discuss. I know there's a lot of young people who want to be fashion designers. There's a lot of people who want to be part of the conversation and creating things in fashion. What advice do you have for them, people who want to be creative and they want to make their own mark, but want to do it in a sustainable and, and a better way for the planet? Absolutely. I think the space of climate justice and human rights needs designers, needs innovation. We need to look at it not in an austere kind of way as with the lens of the doom and gloom. We need to look at it in the lens of creativity. So if you are passionate about these types of things, use your creativity, your design techniques, your magic to apply it in a way on climate issues, on human rights issues, because we need the creativity there most 
more than anything, uh, we need to innovate in these spaces. They are being underserved at the moment because they are sort of spaces that are wrapped around in a big barbed wire of guilt. And no one is really entering the space feeling like, oh, I can make a change. People are entering the space out of necessity. So I would love to invite the design community to enter the space of climate justice and human rights and bring your magic, bring your innovation to this space. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Celine. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. May I add something? Of course. So on May 6th, and this is like an exclusive for you all, I am releasing my first book. It's called A Woman is a School, and it's with Astra Publishing. Tell me more about this book. So A Woman is a School is about education that exists outside of institutions. It's about how I was able to build a school and hopefully a whole educational system that is applicable in the space of climate justice, but of course in other spaces as well. The book is talking to an 18-year-old woman in the global south that is trying to find a way out, trying to find her path and hopefully understanding that the knowledge that she holds, this ancestral knowledge, is the very knowledge that we need to preserve and hold. And so that's what the book is about. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for you as always and just in awe of all the work that you do and so appreciative of you. So thank you so much. And likewise, Lindsay, I'm so in awe of all the work that you've been doing at The Cut. You are amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Of course. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor is Kylie Holloway. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you for listening. <laughs>